Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. And I'm Hado and I too am an autodidact. Well, and I'm here for my fix today. <laughs> welcome, Hado. Um, so today we're talking about one of the three main drivers of the arrow of history, according to Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. Uh, last time we talked about money, and today we're talking about empire. So um, it is one of the three main drivers of the arrow of history. Yes. Um, just about all past cultures have succumbed to the ruthless expansion of one empire or another. Absolutely. And been consigned to the dustbin of history. Yes. And the empires themselves also actually fall eventually. Um, but they do leave behind rich and enduring legacies as opposed to some of the smaller the smaller peoples that got swallowed up by empire. Indeed so. And just about everyone, just about everyone... With very, with very few exceptions that I can think of, is now the offspring of one empire or another. Absolutely. Or multiple. On usually multiple. Yeah, yeah. So what is an empire, Hutto? Well, before we, we head off into what is an empire, um, you're doing your usual great job, Matt, of pushing us through the material. I'm going to sabotage <laughs> that effort. Um I, I go back once again, yes, I'm an author, and yes, I love Harari's abilities as an author. This is a great book. And one of the reasons it's a great book is, you know, having got through money and dozed off a little and decided I'll just turn the page and see what Empires is about, yeah. he hits me in the first sentence with, the ancient Romans were used to being defeated. Yes. You know, he's woken me up immediately. Yeah. Hang on, this is... One of the longest-lasting, most powerful empires yeah. there ever be. And then, of course, he goes on to say, you know, great empires have to be able to lose battle after battle and survive. Yeah. And the Romans did lose a lot of battles, yeah. but they won the ones that mattered in the end. Yeah. Um, but this is something about the flavour and the quality of writing in this book. Yeah. And I just thought I needed to bring this up. Um, what he's talking about here flows into... Well, we can... Discuss it later when we look at what's left after an empire falls. Okay. So the definition of an empire, according to Harari, is a political order with two important characteristics. Firstly, uh, it rules over a significant number of distinct peoples. So yep. there's plenty of cultural diversity, Yep. at least initially. Um, and secondly, it has flexible borders and potentially unlimited appetite to expand them. Yeah. Uh, they can swallow more and more territories without altering their basic structure or identity. So that's the key. Yeah. Now, I must admit, um, I read that and I thought, whoa, I've never thought about empires that way. Yeah. Um, and this is something I, I'd learned out of this book. I hadn't come across this definition of empires before, yep. which shows how ignorant I was and how learned I now am. <laughs> <laughs> so an empire doesn't need to emerge from military conquest. We tend to think that uh, usually they're just, you know, kill all the people around them and now, now they're their emperor. Um, but, for example, the Athenian Empire began as a voluntary league of city-states in ancient Greece. And another example is the Habsburg Empire, which was basically born out of marriage alliances. Yes. And ended up taking over or ruling the majority of Europe there at one stage. Yes. 
Um, it also doesn't need to be ruled by an autocrat. So um, while, while we're doing examples, the European empire, as it's now coming together, of course, has not come together through war. Yes, good point. Um, it also doesn't need to be ruled by a ruthless autocratic emperor. Yeah, it's most disappointing that. <laughs> <laughs> and the British Empire was, was ruled, the, the largest empire that the world's actually seen was ruled by a democracy. Indeed, a constitutional democracy. Um, interesting subject in itself. Mm. So size doesn't matter, which I was very pleased to read. <laughs> um, the Athenian Empire was smaller than the modern Greek state. Yeah. But the modern Greek state is not an empire. Indeed. Um, the Aztec Empire was smaller than Mexico. Yes, I, that again struck me as uh, I hadn't really figured that out before. But they cheated a little bit because uh, it was easier to form an empire back in the day because uh, an empire is about subduing dozens or even hundreds of different polities. Yeah. And that's a little bit more difficult to do these yep. days. There were a lot more smaller mobs around. And um, I, I noted that in your impossible questions, you're going to challenge me on some aspects of what is an empire. And yep. that's going to be one of the talking points. <laughs> so it was easy to build an empire in the old days because there were many more distinct peoples in the world. Um, and Harari gives the example of the modern Israeli state or that area. Yes. Whatever you want to call it. Palestine, Israel. Canaan, uh, uh, the promised land, the, uh, the land of milk and honey. The eternally <laughs> disputed land. I Canaan, think. <laughs> uh, the Levant. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that used to be the home for dozens of distinct people. Absolutely. The book uh, of Joshua makes that very clear. Yeah. yeah. So um, it is a good example. I mean, the crossroads of the world in a sense. Mm. And uh, there's been uh, peoples going in and out of there for a long time. Um, so nowadays, imperialist is a word that's frowned upon by, uh, by most. Bad connotation. Second only to fascist, <laughs> possibly. Yeah, although some people throw communist in there these days. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's which true. the Chinese government is not too keen on. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, the conventional... Criticism of empires usually takes one of two forms. So the first criticism, first criticism is that empires don't work in the long run. Yeah. Um, it's, I found it interesting he even threw that in there. Um, mm, yeah. Broad-thinking people like you and I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. ...hadn't come to that conclusion, but he's, he's probably right. It's much frowned upon these days. And the second one, which... Uh, probably has a little bit more weight, is that empires are evil engines of destruction and exploitation. People have a right to self-determination, Hutto, not subjugation. Ah, uh, yes. Well, we live in a Western society with... It's keen on rights and freedom and individuality. Yeah, those damn, those damn rights. <laughs> All those things, yeah. Um, so the first criticism is just plain untrue. Um, empires have been very successful and, in fact, have been the main political... Uh, order under which just about everybody's lived for the last two, two and a half thousand years. Absolutely, and uh, fundamental contributors to the arrow of history. Yeah. Which and in many ways we could regard as the arrow of progress. Yeah. And the, it's actually, he defines, as, he defines it as the arrow of unification. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Um, and they are historically very stable. Um, 
So empires have traditionally only been toppled by external invasion or an internal split amongst the ruling elite. Yeah. It's very rare for the subjugated peoples to free themselves. Absolutely. Um, and I thought that was very interesting, that second point. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter what's going on in the have-nots, what really matters is the have. Now, you know, we, we think of the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, etc., but the reality is it's when the haves drop the ball and mm. start fighting in between themselves mm. that the have-nots may get some input into the process. Maybe. I mean, I mean the thing about the have-nots traditionally is they haven't really been switched on politically to any large degree, and, and who rules over them Correct. often doesn't matter that much. Correct. And the ones who are often make it to the top of the political process and mm. become haves. And become haves, yep. yeah. Um, typically, subjugated peoples are ruled for hundreds of years, um, which speaks to stability of empire, mm. until their distinct cultures eventually disappear. Yes. So when you have an empire, it's not like you continue to rule over hundreds of different cultures. No. Um you tend to unif the culture tends to unify over the, time. The process is assimilation, uh, and it's a very important process. The those who have been absorbed into empire gradually try and become more part of that empire um, and be seen as it. So one of the big arguments at present is you know there's going to be more Spanish speakers in the USA than whatever. But the reality is that many of those Spanish speakers, the next generation of them is trying more and more to look like normal Americans speaking American yeah. English I, and so on. I guess that speaks to the have-nots generally want to be more like the haves. Yes. Mm. Um, so, for example, when the Roman Empire finally collapsed in 476 AD, most of the tribes, and they conquered hundreds of different types of peoples, um, they no longer existed. They were Romans. So it's not like the Roman Empire collapsed and then all of a sudden you went back to how it was in the old days. Exactly right, yes. And that's, uh, that's also part of what he's saying about uh, this wonderful tribe of, uh, who were they? Uh, the Numantia, who stood out against the Romans and they fought the Romans and the Romans couldn't conquer them. They finally sent their best general and surrounded them and starved them to death. Um, but... Nothing came out of it except via Rome. It's the Roman version of the historians. Yeah. It's the only reason we know about them. We don't know their language. And so what were the Numantians so great about? Well, they were great about fighting Romans. <laughs> yeah. The story supposedly about Numantia, which is now an icon of Spanish freedom fighters, etc., is actually a story about Rome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take Rome out of the picture, you haven't got the story. So, using that example, a Caledonian chief in ancient Scotland allegedly mm. accused the Romans of making a desert and calling it peace. Mm. But it turns out that that line was actually written by Tacitus. Yep. And he probably made it up. Yep. And the guy that he attributed it to probably didn't even exist in the first place. Indeed so. So, so... I guess winners are grinners. I mean, uh, you know, the Romans could look back and go, oh, weren't they brave kind of, you know, savages that we uh, overcame? Exactly. And, it, it, it's always a thing that winners write the history books. Yeah, so. yeah, that's right. Um, even if subjugated peoples could overthrow an empire, it usually just led to another, another empire taking its place. Yes. 
And the Middle East is obviously a classic example of that. I mean, there's been empires going back for a long time, two and a half thousand years, um, starting with the rise of the Neo-Assyrian Empire in the 8th century BC and ending with the collapse of the British and French empires in the mid-20th century. It yep. was ruled by one empire after another. Yep. Um, this is what they mean by a power vacuum. Mm. Yes. And the, the peoples that lived there, and there were dozens, if not hundreds of different peoples that lived in this area, such as the Aramaeans, the Ammonites, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, and others... The mosquito bites should be in there. <laughs> yeah. Had long disappeared. Yes. Uh, with a couple of exceptions, interesting exceptions, actually. Jews, Armenians and Georgians yes. still have maintained their national identity to this day. Yes. That might speak to the stubbornness of uh, certain people, I don't know, or maybe historical circumstances. Uh, lastly, to the shrewdness, uh, all three of those have a reputation for being very good with money, amongst other things, mm. too. It's not just about being shrewd, though, because a lot of the time it's in your interest to assimilate with the empire. Yes. So, in a sense, it's not shrewd to maintain your national identity. Correct. <laughs> now, the thing here, too, is... It's not so much about the have-nots wanting to become like the haves. Now, the bogans are happy to still be bogans. The thing is, it's about us wanting to be us, not them. And in most places, if you've been taken over by an empire, you want to be part of the us, not part of the them, because the them are getting trodden down pretty firmly. Well, yeah. This exception is there are certain cultures which managed to defy that and still somehow make you want to be part of that culture as an us. Mm. Judaism, of course, has done that magnificently, but it is interesting that there are others like... Um, uh, what was the one you Armenians. said? Armenians. Armenians, yes. The Armenians have indeed done that too. Mm. Um, empires used wars, enslavement, deporta deportation and genocide to subjugate people. Yeah, those are pretty effective tools. I use them in <laughs> Civilization 3 too. <laughs> so this is why they've got a bad reputation, I suppose. Yes, stage that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they did have a good side. Um, they made money, which meant that they were able to finance philosophy, art, justice, charity, and a lot of the, um, the cultural uh, touching points that we still... Uh, that still sort of uh, speak to us to this day. I mean, yes. Most of them were forged by empire. Yes. Um, when, when we say they made money, they took wealth from those they subjugated, <laughs> and then literally, yes, they made money. They... <laughs> <laughs> what principally meant yeah, made the money. <laughs> that's right, uh, yeah. which, as we were looking at last week. So, for example, the Roman Empire produced Cicero, Seneca and St. Augustine, among many others. Yes. And I'm, I'm constantly reading these guys, Hato. Yeah, that's Today, uh, we speak imperial languages that were forced upon our ancestors. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in the Americas, they speak Spanish, Portuguese, French or English. That's Absolutely. That's pretty much what they speak. Yep. Uh, modern Egyptians speak Arabic. They practice Islam and identify with the Arab Empire, despite the fact that their ancestors repeatedly revolted against Arab rule. Yeah. Modern-day Zulu descendants identify with the height of the Zulu Empire in the 19th century. 
despite the fact that most of their ancestors fought against the original Zulus. Yep. And I suppose the Aztecs are another example of that as well. There's probably a lot of native Mexicans that uh, identify with the Aztec Empire, but the Aztec... The Aztecs tended to enslave the peoples around them. Yes, yes. So, you know, <laughs> empires, empires, they're all over the place. They are. <laughs> um, the first empire that we actually know about is the Akkadian Empire of Sargon the Great around 2250 BC. Yeah. And uh, I'm a fan of Sargon the Great because he's basically the first individual in history that we that's famous, that, yes. that, that people know. Yes. Um. He, he began as the king of Kish, which is a small city-state in Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. And he managed to conquer all of Mesopotamia, as well as a lot of territory outside of Mesopotamia. He proclaimed himself the king of the entire world. Um, but the empire didn't last, last long after his death. And king of the world, Hutto. He's getting a bit ahead of himself. That, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> It's a, it's only a little bit strip of land by modern standards. Yeah. Um, now, the empire didn't last long after his death, but the die had been cast. From then on, one empire after another passed through this region. Assyria, Babylon, the Hittites, uh, they all adopted Sargon as a role model. So yeah. Sargon was a, was a big boy in history. Oh, a big boy in history. <laughs> Mind you, he, he was a little more recent history, though. Yeah. Um, they too boasted about having conquered the entire world. I'm not sure, I'm not sure why everyone thought they had conquered the entire world. I suppose, I suppose they thought they'd conquered every part of the world that was worth conquering. Well, that's right. I mean, the rest of the world belongs to them and yeah. they don't count, they're barely human. <laughs> so then around 550 BC, Cyrus the Great of Persia came along. And uh, he changed the model of empire, Hutto. Yeah. He revolutionised it. He claimed... That he was conquering everybody for their own benefit. Yeah, it's a... It, it's... I'm still trying to get my head around that change of mindset. Yeah. Um, this is the first change between us and them because for the first time he's recognising that all of them could become us. Yeah, and a huge, huge leap. Yeah. Now, you and know, non-intuitive. No, absolutely not. I mean, no other species thinks this way. He's already made the point back in earlier chapters, you know, lions don't worry about being the biggest lion there is. But Sargon's actually got the concept, you know, I could be... No, Cyrus. Sorry, Cyrus has actually got the concept, I could be the biggest frog in the Pacific Ocean, which he hadn't even heard about at the time. Um, But, yeah, it is a huge mental leap. It is. Um... So he wanted to be loved, not just feared. So yeah. the previous guys just ruthlessly exploited the people Absolutely. that they conquered and just didn't care about them. It was all for the benefit yeah. of their people. Yeah. But Cyrus, not only was he the king of the Persians, he was also the king of the Jews, yes. for example. Um, so he freed the Jewish exiles in Babylon and offered them financial assistance to rebuild their temple in their original homeland. Yeah. That is interesting. Um and that's, a, that's an historical fact. I mean, you can argue a lot about, you know, what's in the Bible and how true it is, yeah. but, uh, you know, that, that definitely happened. That's ba- <laughs> I mean, that's basically how the Bible came to be written. And yes. And from that, we then got Christianity, and from that, we then got Islam. Yeah. And, you know, maybe if Sargon could... So if, um, Cyrus. Cyrus could redo it, he might yeah. say that was a bad move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, you're touching on one of my unanswerable questions there, oh, huh? right. so uh, we'll... <laughs> We'll talk about that in a bit more detail later. 
So he, so he considered himself the king of the Jews, for example, among many other peoples that he conquered. And he was responsible for their welfare, which was a startling leap, not biologically natural for humans. Uh, we now had a more unified vision for the peoples of the world. Yeah, that vision world word is, you know, dreams, visions, ideas, these things change everything. I'm, starting to, dig this, I'm starting to dig this Cyrus guy, you know, like he seems well, like he was a good yeah, guy. Yeah. Um, so this vision that he pioneered then passed on to Alexander the Great, uh, to the Hellenistic kings, to the Roman Empire emperors, to the Muslim caliphs, to the Indian dynasts, to the Soviet premiers and American presidents. Yeah. Um, now, you've got throwback, throwbacks like Tiberius, who reckoned he didn't care about being loved so long as he was feared, um, but he's not generally held as being one yeah, of the great I, Roman ex- I'm not emperors. an expert on Tiberius, but he would have been ruling over a people that, a lot of people that weren't natively Roman. Are you suggesting that he didn't identify with the Roman people at all, just about just to himself? Because we're not talking like so. We're we're saying Sargon identified with the Assyrian, sorry, yeah. the Akkadian people. Yeah. Uh, Tiberius might have been a guy that did not identify with anyone. It's a uh, slightly different case. Yeah, he is. Um, I mean, and as I'm saying, he's regarded as kind of a traditional tyrant and not a role model for anybody, <laughs> um, which is interesting. But uh, what's more interesting is this idea of rulers wanting to be loved by everyone, all their subjects. It, this is... Yeah, but they justify it not as I want to be loved, I mean, although they do, but they're saying it's for the good of these people. Well, absolutely. And, and now they've justified the oppression of the rules. Yes. And uh, they've also justified expansion of their empire as well. Correct. And the white man's burden, you know. Yeah, we've... yeah the, what the, I mean, the example that comes to mind for me is, is the British in India. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And we'll talk about that in a yeah. bit more detail later. Um, now, slightly different imperial visions developed in China and Central America. Uh, I didn't know this about China, but I knew about the Mandate of Heaven. Right. But I thought the Mandate of Heaven gave you the right to rule China. Yeah. But it wasn't actually that. It was the right to rule everything under, yeah. under heaven. And interestingly enough, of course, the Japanese adopted pretty much the same structure when they kind of broke away from China. Um, but it was still the Mandate from Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> So I can see that leading to some, maybe some problems in the future. <laughs> uh, yeah, there were some. <laughs> so the mandate of heaven was essentially the source of all authority. And so heaven chooses the most worthy person mm. and gives them the mandate to rule. Now, once again, we're using, we're using religion to justify, you know, earthly uh, kind of uh, ambitions, I suppose. Which is the next chapter. But... Yeah, Okay. So if you lost the mandate of heaven, you lost all legitimacy to rule. So the, wor- the whole world was supposed to be ruled by one, um, one empire mm. and no external state was legitimate. Um, imperial periods in China are seen as golden ages of order and justice and political disunification uh, are seen as dark periods of chaos and injustice. Mm. Now, I've often wondered, I sometimes see China as equivalent to Europe in terms of you know size mm-hmm. and... and uh, you know, probably power over the years and so forth. But Europe is very segregated, broken up into all these different national states, and China yeah. is very unified. Now, I always thought that was probably because of geography, because China tends to be fairly uh, homogeneous when it comes to geography, whereas Europe's very, you know, yeah. got a lot of mountains and rivers and all that sort of stuff, different climates. Um, 
But obviously, this political belief of the Chinese had a lot to do with that as well. So if, if China wasn't unified, there was heaven wasn't happy. China needed to be unified yeah. for, the, for the world to be functioning properly. I hadn't... I, I was aware of this difference in Chinese mythos, as it were. Um, I understand you know, the one-party system in China is firmly founded on the idea that dissension is a very bad thing. When China yeah. splits up, yeah. millions of people die. You know? And, and, it, and it, it justifies a one-party state, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. So I don't know if they talk about that stuff in modern China, but... Do they have a concept of the mandate of heaven, the Chinese Communist Party? I don't know if they have a concept. Perhaps not, perhaps not, perhaps not an explicit concept, but it would be in their mindset. Uh, it, it is in the mindset, it's rooted in the language, if you like, that disunity is very bad. Yeah. Um, it is only when we are unified that we are strong and things so are good. So I could see that being used as an argument against democracy. Yes, yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't made that connection either. Oh, right. Hutto, you're just, you're, you're just enriching my life. Um, so it was the job of every Chinese king to attempt reunification. Yeah. So empires have amalgamated many small cultures into fewer big cultures. And this now we're getting into the hour of history. Yes. Standardisation of laws, customs, language and culture made the empires easier to rule. Yes. Um, I, I like that heading, when they become us. Yeah. This is what unification is really about. Yeah. Uh, it also provided the emperor with more legitimacy to justify their actions. So we're doing this to spread a superior culture from which the conquered benefit even more than the conquerors. Once again, that, yes. that reminds <laughs> me of the, the British Empire. But... Oh, God. <laughs> And I know you are a you're proud son of the British Empire, Hutto. Uh, well, we would had many, many centuries of training, so we did it right. <laughs> <laughs> now, just remember, imperialist is a swear word like fascism, Hutto. I know, I know. World domination. <laughs> <laughs> God save the Queen. I have paid civilization so many times. <laughs> Now, these benefits that they used to justify their expansion, they weren't imaginary. So no. there, there were benefits. And, yes. And that makes me think of, uh, and you'd be familiar with this, the famous uh, Monty Python sketch in The Life of Brian, when the, um, when, when the Jews are saying, let's overthrow the, the Romans. You know, what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> and the conversation keeps going Indeed. on like that. And they end up, I watched it on YouTube when I was, when I was making my notes, and the, the benefits they came up with just in that conversation were aqueducts, sanitation, the roads, irrigation, medicine, education, the wine, public baths, law and order, and peace. But apart from that, Hutto, what have the Romans done for us? <laughs> Currency. <laughs> yeah, well, you can keep going. Um, most imperial, imperial elites genuinely, genuinely believed they were acting in the best interests of the people. And, and this, is, this is what I learned most from this book, just how we, how the human brain works. Yeah. You know, a lot of the time when you're an empire, I'm pretty sure it's a good example, they weren't going, oh, we're going to go out there and ruthlessly exploit people and enrich ourselves. Now, that sure was, was an incentive and that was part of it. But, you know, a lot of these people genuinely believe this is the best thing for these Africans or for these Indians or for, for whoever. Indoctrination. Look, yeah, I... and Harari covers that sort of mindset. I, you know, I haven't encountered it before in other books so much. Right, yes. 
Now, I, you know, personal experience here, because I was born in a colony of the British Empire. Um, but you were the ru- you were the ruler, Hutto. You weren't the ruled. <laughs> well, I was I was just a you kid. Just but a kid. when I was ten years old, having been born in Nigeria and lived in Ghana and you know, Queen and God save the Queen and British Empire rules, whatever. Um, and then I'm going to a public boarding school in England. You know, being trained as part of the the British elite or something. This stuff was filtered into me. Yeah. And at age 10, I did kind of believe most of it because I could actually see it around me. I mean, back in Africa, you had the black people and the white people, you know, the, the colonials and the, the ruled or whatever. And, okay, one day, for example there was a dispute broke out in the servants' quarters and one guy was having a knife at our chief steward and he came running to my mother. My father was uh, running a company at the time. Um, so the guy who's being carved up, who's our chief steward, comes running to my mother, who is a five-foot-four white defenceless female, for protection <laughs> from this guy who's wielding a knife. Yeah. And my mother strides out there and tells him to back off or she will call the police. And, and yes, it all prevails. Well, that's extraordinary. Um, yeah. and, and this is what you saw all the time. You know, they constantly turned to us because we weren't part of any tribe. It was an intertribal dispute that was yeah. going on. Yeah. Um, you saw what happened in Rhodesia, you saw what happened in South Africa and apartheid, etc. But what happened in Rhodesia didn't surprise us. My father was asked to head the revolution against Nkrumah, the first elected president of, of Ghana following decolonization. Yeah. Why was he asked? Because he was a white man. They were superior. People would follow him, you know. Yeah. It was at that point he made arrangements to quit the country. <laughs> he um, could have made himself famous. Well, yeah, he could also have made himself dead. But <laughs> and, and He would have had to have made a lot of other people dead. Well, it? yeah, that's right. You yeah. know, the same thing goes on. But the point is, at 10 years old, I was actually seeing this in my life, yeah. the white man's burden. You should, we write, solved the you should write your life story, Haddon. It's very interesting. Well, Son of empire, you could call it. Well, yes, indeed. Anyway, the empire disappeared and I grew up and learnt wiser things. But And now, now no one treats you uh, like you're special anymore. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know a bit about indoctrination in a different way. I was raised a, a Catholic mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm a lapsed Catholic and I don't... I don't really believe in it, but I'll never, I'll never fully shake it, right? Um, because I was indoctrinated in it, and uh, you know, I, I've never been able to sort of, I've never been able to make the leap to become fully secular, right? And sometimes, sometimes I wish, I, never wish I hadn't been indoctrinated, right. and then I would have, it would have been easier to make my own decisions about what I truly believe. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot of guilt involved with Catholicism. Well, indeed. I got some Protestant indoctrination, and at the time, all it did was an inoculation for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it serious? Like, was... Did you get serious inoculation, or was it a bit half-hearted, wasn't it? Uh, Indoctrination, not inoculation. Yes, yeah. uh, Certainly not uh, nearly as... Because I got got seriously indoctrinated. Yeah, you you got the... I mean, the Catholics know how to do it, but the Protestants are... (laughs) Bit weak and washy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so this this sort of um, these benefits 
uh, that uh, empires allegedly or actually in reality do bring um, or the attitude that it justifies our expansion continues to this day. And there's many examples. So China treated their neighbours as miserable barbarians to whom must be brought the benefits of culture. Uh, mm. The mandate of heaven was bestowed upon the emperor in order to educate humanity. Indeed. And uh, the tie-in with religious indoctrination is so apparent yeah, here, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the three big drivers that Harari talks about, when you think about it, just about everything can be explained in terms of those three things and a, and a, and a combination thereof. Mm. Um, the Mauryan Empire in, in the subcontinent disseminated Buddhist teachings to an ignorant world. The Muslim caliphs spread the prophet's revelation. The Spanish and Portuguese colonised the Americas to spread the message about the one true faith. Mm. The, the Catholicism, hello. That's right, I'm going to convert you one day. The British spread the messages of liberalism and free trade, which I tend to agree with, but that's only because I was indoctrinated. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. The, the greatest merchant empire on earth. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting misty-eyed thinking about it, aren't you? <laughs> the Soviet, Soviets were facilitating the inexorable rise of the communist paradise. Indeed. And the Americans spread the message of democracy and human rights. Indeed. And uh, they don't care how many people they have to kill to do it. No, that's, that's the one, because the message is bigger than any one individual. This is what's good about being Australian, is because we exert such little power in the world that we can sort of criticise everybody. And, uh... Ah, yes, the whole <laughs> continent of resources shared between a population. One there's, only like, there's only like 20 people down here. <laughs> well, one, one third the population of the British Isles. It's, uh... Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the process of assimilation to these empires was often painful and traumatic. Um, and it could take decades, if not centuries, for full assimilation to occur. Yes. And this is why I find it interesting that you say, oh, look, it's, it's a real credit to, the, to, say, the Jewish people and the Armenians that they, they kept their identity. Da, da, da. And I'm not sure it is. I, I think you're better off just assimilating. I, I, would, I, would, be, I would be a yes. collaborator. Yes. I'd absolutely be collaborating. I'd, I'd welcome our new overlords. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be insisting. I wouldn't be that stubborn. Because at the end of the day, if you're being stubborn, really what you're doing is just showing faith to a previous empire anyway. <laughs> and I can, but I can imagine the first generation or two struggling. But after hundreds of years... Uh, it's the, the, This is a deep question about the importance of culture. I mean, going back again to our Numantians, who, when the Romans had surrounded them... Mm. Um, and they could see that they were going to be defeated, they killed themselves off rather than become yeah. slaves to Rome. Yeah. And then you're, then you're left saying, well, okay, now neither your culture nor your genes will survive. So, so they, they made that decision, and good on them, it's a romantic story. But did their great-great-great-grandchildren benefit from that decision, Hutto? Well, obviously. Very not. selfish. Very <laughs> selfish. <laughs> and this is why I choose to collaborate. Well... It, it's a perfectly reasonable argument. I mean, the whole population is, you know, to join us together and make us all us. And these Jews or Armenians or whatever, mm. the problem is they never really fit. And Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in some sense, the process is inexorable anyway. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's been the driver of history for the last two and a half thousand years. It has. And yet, you can also say that the Jews in particular have created their own drive through history, which has shaped many things. Um, so I'm not saying whether or not it's good or bad. I'm saying their agenda was to create 
a culture which would survive, yeah. and they did. And it's, there's certainly something romantic and appealing about that, for sure. You know, and that's you know, yeah. and, and you know, credit to them for doing it. But um, but then if you if you sit back and look at it another way, you go, ah, mate, you, you created a lot of problems for yourselves, and in in, in this case, your ancestors. Yeah. You know? Um. So yeah, it, it it it's a tough one. Um. Now the Jews are an interesting case because they they split themselves up into two kingdoms at one stage, and there were, there were twelve tribes of Israel. Ten of them lived in the northern kingdom, which was Israel. Two of them lived in the southern kingdom, Judah, right? Now, the ten... Now, Judah... Israel, sorry, the northern kingdom, got overtaken by the Assyrians. Yep. And they disappeared. They oh, were, yeah. They're the ten lost tribes of Israel. Yep. They did the smart thing. They became Assyrian, Hutto. Now, they're probably... You know, who knows? But they, no. their Jewish path is yep. lost. But the... Um, what happened was the, the ones from Judah, they got conquered by Babylon. Yep. But then they got freed by Cyrus. Yes. And sent back. Yes. Critical... Yes. Critical to the the maintenance of the identity of the Jewish people. Absolutely, because they then set about rewriting their history to create a culture which would maintain yeah. their identity, while at the same time not appearing threatening to Cyrus. Mm. <laughs> so sometimes the barriers between the newcomers to a culture and the elite broke down. So well, this happened a lot. So after centuries, conquered people... In the, in the case of the Roman Empire, conquered peoples could rise in the ranks of Roman society. They could achieve high rankings in the Roman military and even become emperor towards That's, the end. Yeah. A lot of, I think a lot of traditional Romans blamed the, the uh, poor fortunes of the empire and the fact that they had, like, Spanish emperors. And Indeed. So and th- this isn't just Rome we're talking about. I mean, no. Hitler was Austrian. Uh, Catherine the Great was not Russian. Napoleon had an Italian Na- accent. Napoleon was Corsican. That's exactly <laughs> right. You know, this is not such an unusual Stalin story. Stalin was at Georgian. Yeah. Always found that interesting. Yes. Yeah. Alexander the Great was Macedonian. Yeah. It's like whoa. Okay. Um, even for centuries after the Roman Empire collapsed, previous barbarians continued barbarians in inverted commas continued to speak Latin, practice Christianity, and to follow Roman law. Yes. Um, a similar process occurred in the Arab Empire, maybe even more so. The imperial, cult, imperial culture was wholeheartedly adopted by numerous non-Arab peoples, such as the Iranians, Turks and Berbers. Even to the point where those peoples are often considered to be Arabs to this day. Yes. Which they're not. The Arabs are the people that came out of the desert. Yes. Um, it's just that all these peoples were so greatly influenced by the Arabs. Yes. And many of those Jews who were talking about had nothing to do with the original <laughs> genetic Israel. <laughs> this is why I question the maintenance of these, these cultures. You know, like, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's just, it's crazy. Um, in the modern era, Europeans conquered much of the globe. Billions of people gradually adopted significant parts of the European culture. So they learned European languages, yep. uh, as we spoke about before. Began to believe in human rights and the principle of self-determination. How dare they, Hutto? Um, so they adopted Western ideologies such as liberalism, capitalism, communism, nationalism, feminism. Um, local groups who'd adopted European values started claiming equality with their Western masters in the name of European values. Yep. So, so the, the oppressed were using Western culture to fight against their oppressors. Absolutely. I think that's ironic. It is extremely <laughs> ironic, um, but 
you have to be careful what you put out as being your values, don't you? <laughs> Maybe we need to do a rethink on this. <laughs> um, so nowadays, imperialism is often viewed as a bad thing, but this is probably naive or at worst disingenuous. So not many cultures since the dawn of history have been pure and untouched by sin. No. So sometimes anti-imperialists say, oh, wow, we had all these... Bit like you know, sitting by the river eating fish, or these yes. pure, you know, really good people, and now you know they've been they've been tarnished by empire, and now they're as corrupt as everybody. And else. we were the chosen people of God. But yeah. <laughs> now we don't actually know of any cultures that can actually make the claim of being pure and untouched and always being good. No, not at all. Um, the British Empire in in, in India uh, is a classic example of a love hate relationship between rulers and the world. Yep. Um, so there were certainly a lot of bad stuff going on. So one minor detail is that millions of Indians were killed. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and and then there was continuous humiliation and, and um, rampant exploitation no of, question. of the Indian peoples. And, you know, plenty of other bad stuff as well. Now, but there was also some good stuff. So Indians adopted Western ideas with zeal, such as the idea of self-determination and human rights. Yes. Um the British actually united a muddle of warring kingdoms and tribes. So they created a shared national Indian consciousness for the yes. first time. Uh, they created the judicial system and administrative structures. They built the railroads, which is the classy argument you usually hear about the and, benefits of And the also the canals. Oh, well, you should let me add that to my notes. <laughs> um, Since independence, India adopted the British form of democratic government. Mm -hmm. Um, English is the subcontinent's lingua franca. Yes. And they love their cricket and tea. They certainly do. The fact is that if Indians reject the legacy of the British Empire, which they're entitled to do, they're inadvertently accepting the legacy of an older, more brutal Mughal Empire. This was... (laughs) I hadn't thought this one. No, me either. Me either. It was, you know, it's a good point. And he used he uses pictures of architecture as the example. He's got the uh, picture of the Victorian, well, what was the Victoria train station? Yeah. And so there's the picture there. It's now called the Chhatrapati Shivaji train station in Mumbai. Which of course used to be called Bombay. It was it was the Victoria Station in Bombay, and then he goes on to talk about. Well, if we get rid of that, you're going back to the Taj Mahal. Oh no, we don't want to get rid of that. A beautiful photo thereof, which is also not authentic Indian culture. It was a creation of Muslim imperialism. Yeah, so you can go back and reject the legacies of the Mughal Muslim Empire. But then you're inadvertently sanctifying the legacy of the earlier Gupta Empire. Oh, you can't win, can you? <laughs> it's turtles all the way down, though. It is, it is. And, <laughs> and in fact, of course, your whole caste system comes out of... Well, that's it? out of the first empire, yeah. which was the, uh, well, the, the Aryans that basically yeah, uh, yeah. came in. And, uh, you know, do you want to go back to the caste system? Yeah. Um, it's a thorny, complex question. It is. I mean, once empire takes hold... Yeah. You can't go back. No. And, uh, you know, the point's also made, not sure if it's in this chapter or the next chapter where he deals with religion, um, 
that if King David came back to Judaism, as it now is, yes. Jews, yeah. he wouldn't recognise it. He wouldn't recognise it. Well, one, I think one classic, concrete example of that is that Jews today are reading the Torah. Absolutely. King David didn't have a Torah. No, like, what's this book they're reading? That's right. And they're speaking in, well, they may be speaking Yiddish or yeah, whatever a, a European language. Yeah, dialect. Right. Or at the very best, modern Hebrew, which is not ancient Hebrew. Yeah. Um, I spoke to a, a Palestinian, actually, mm-hmm. and I asked them, okay, how do you feel about the, the, the Israel situation? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, are, you sort of, um, are you sort of biased against Jewish people? He said, well, he said no. And uh, he said, no, what we're, what we're sort of against is European colonisation of our homeland. Right, yeah. <laughs> well... We've got nothing against the Jews. It's just the Europeans have come in and, and, and sort of half taken over our land or pretty much taken over our yeah, land. Yeah, well, yeah, that's certainly been the outcome. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think the name Palestine is interesting as well because the Romans named it Palestine after yes. the Jews revolted because they named it after the Philistines, which were the Jews' enemies. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, setting up, you're setting up future problems, aren't oh, you? <laughs> the muddle of history. <laughs> yeah, so I, I find it fascinating, all this stuff. So, um, now we're going to talk about where empire's going to go, where we think it's going to go and where it's going. Right. right. So where it's going now and where we think it's going to go. So the new global empire. I don't know. So nationalism is starting to lose ground in the 21st century, which was something that, Took me a bit by surprise, but just bear with me. And I think it's one of our unanswerable questions anyway. Okay. So we'll cover this in more detail. But um, uh, for example, wouldn't a single global government be a simpler way of guarding human rights? So if, if, if people in Sweden and Nigeria agree on what basic human rights are, why do we have Sweden and Nigeria? We might as well just have Swedearia. Hey, yes, yeah. <laughs> just points. be simpler, right? Good points. Uh, wouldn't it be a better way of dealing with global problems such as, well, if you've only got one state, you're probably not going to have, you're not going to certainly have wars between states, are you? No. Um, we could probably solve the climate change better. Yep. And maybe we could deal with pandemics better rather than dealing with it on a state-by-state basis. We've got 200 different treatments for coronavirus at, at the moment and yep. some are doing well, i.e. Australia and New Zealand. We're leading the world at the moment. Um, and some aren't doing so well. Indeed, and we could also say that it would enable us to tackle organised crime, which is running rampant at present. Yeah, yeah. So the world is still politically fragmented, but states are fast losing their independence. I think think that's probably true as well. So economically, in terms of economic policy, uh, in terms of waging war, or even sometimes running internal affairs, it's, it's really becoming impossible to act completely independently as a country. Correct. We, we see it every time the government tells us that they can't let a site be used for something because it's heritage listed internationally or because... Yes. And we all... That they can't make it illegal to do this because it's part of a free yeah. trade agreement that yeah. says, you know, all this was done. Yeah, and as an Australian in the old days, we had a fixed exchange rate and we just pegged it to whatever we wanted it to be and yep. we were very happy, thank you very much, we but won't. we can't do that anymore. No. The, the international monetary forces and economic forces are just too powerful yes. and Australia doesn't, can't prop up a certain no. exchange rate. Um, so, global markets, multinational corporations, global NGOs such as the United Nations and the World Health Organization, yeah. 
the international judicial system in The Hague, yes. and even global public opinion, which yes. is true. Yes. I, I, I haven't considered public opinion, but in, in a sense, leaders do take into account global public opinion. Yes. You know, if the world gets too pissed off with you, uh, Saddam Hussein, for example, yeah. you know, you're in a bit of trouble. Yeah. Uh, I thought North Korea was wrestling with that one. Yeah, they, 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 they seem to be maintaining the, the status quo pretty mm. well, though. Um, they've got a they've got a way to run, I think. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's having more more and more effect on individual states. And as communication and, and technology gets better, the world just becomes a smaller place. It does. Um, but sta- te- technology is a few chapters down the track. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> well, forgive me for mentioning it. Um, states need to comply with global standards in terms of financial behaviour, environmental policy, and justice. Yeah. If they want to be a, in the international community. Yeah. Because what they do affects everybody else. Yeah. The new global empire is, in a sense, being forged as we speak. Indeed. <gasps> and I hope they all speak English because I don't want to learn Esperanto. Well, you're in the box seat on that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I think about that sometimes. I think, will China become the new world language? And I don't think it will because it's too complicated. Correct. English and, is simpler. And they actually, the Chinese actually like the fact that they only get to speak Chinese so they can talk with us yeah, and then talk a different language with the rest of the world. Even though they have the mandate of heaven to rule the entire world. Indeed. (laughs) They're still still going to make that happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're going to do it like the Americans did it financially, I think. Um, That actually gets us to the end of the chapter. And you know what? I think we should wind it up here, Hello, because we've gone a fairly long time and I have a huge list of unanswerable questions for you and I think we could just about make another episode you, out of it. You have, and having had a, a brief look at some of these unanswerables, yeah, there's, there's a good, yeah. good separate podcast there. Yeah, good. So um, don't say that too soon, though, because I might end up adding it on to this same one, but we'll take a break in recording for now. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Hello, think ahead. Well, OK, so it's not... <laughs> It's not see you on the flip-flop, it's see you in half an hour, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, but I do have an appointment on the treadmill. In oh, the, OK. So we'll see how we go. Um, so, yeah, but why not for now? So I will see you on the flip-flop. Right. And um, it's great to see you. Elbow bump. Hey! <laughs> see ya. Hello and welcome back to Autodidacts Anonymous. We've had our uh, 10 minute drinks and toilet break, haven't we, Hello? Uh, yes, that's what it was. This must be the flop or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the, the previous half was the flip and this yeah. is the flop. So it's good to see you, on, good to see you again. Um, so we took a break because we've got a fair bit left to cover because I have a myriad of unanswerable questions for you, you today. certainly does. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we can get... Get cracking with them, uh, if you like. Yes, let's get into them. This is the fun part. So my first question for you is a very simple, unanswerable question. (laughs) Is the United States of America an empire? Yes, what a great question. And (laughs) I'm going to talk around this one for quite a bit. Now, first of all, to answer this question, we have to remember what Harari defined as being an empire. Yes. An empire is a political order with two important characteristics. You have to rule over a significant number of distinct people, each possessing a different cultural identity and separate territory. And secondly, you must have flexible borders 
and potentially unlimited appetite. So they can swallow more and more other cultures without altering their own basic structure or identity. Exactly right. Yeah. Now, what's happening here is that Harari is being very smart, very wise, and he's leading us from history into the future. Right. Um, and he mentions in some places, you know, what he's talking about here is the arrow of history leading to unification. Yes. We are becoming more and more a unified people, species, and he sees full globalization as being the inevitable end of that arrow of history. Yes. Um, we have now therefore reached a very interesting stage in history where the number of diverse cultures is at the lowest it has ever been. Yes. Which means the potential for absorbing diverse cultures is now lower than it's ever been. Yes. What we now need to happen is nations and empires need to join together to achieve final unification. Mm. Um, this is an almost traumatic stage of history. He mentions elsewhere how... We've actually gone 70 years without a major war between empires. This is pretty much unprecedented. Yeah. So the situation with America is it came into being looking like an empire. It is the United States of America. They joined a whole bunch of states, independent states together. Well, they broke free from an empire, the British Empire, through war. And then they joined a whole bunch of independent states together. Yes. And then, yes, they hungrily added more and more until they got up to 50, 50 51 states. Well, it's 50 states and, and uh, Puerto Rico, that's I think, one. is a state in the making. Uh, the pending state, yes. Yeah. Um, and that's it. Then they did have some, some places, you know, they've got Hawaii, Puerto Rico, etc. For a while they had Philippines as kind of part of the empire and stuff like that. Cuba. Cuba. But it stopped. The expansion has stopped because there's no more states to acquire. Now, at one stage, of course, part of the states did try to separate the southern states and they had a major war over that and the empire forced them back in. Mm. If we look at the empire's... Now around, we've got the Soviet Empire has now gone. The British Empire has now gone. The European Empire is trying to be an empire in the making, mm. but we've lost you know, Brexit and so on. It's actually, we're seeing a breakup, and they're not very happy about Brexit. They've made that pretty much as hard as possible. Mm. But the ability to absorb new states might be possible in Africa or South America, mm. but it isn't really possible anymore around the USA. Yes. So the answer is they were an empire. They grew into life as an empire. They have a culture. They have a currency. They have um, a single language. Well, they also speak a lot of Spanish, but basically it's English. American English, a version of English. Um, they've got Hollywood to spread their culture around the place, but they are no longer behaving as an empire because they're no longer acquiring new states. Yes. Um, and this is what we're now going to see. Um, China will try and take back Hong Kong, as it's doing, and it'll try and reacquire Thailand, and yep. it's already acquired Tibet, which is 
the last state which uh, was Taiwan, a, I think you mean. Not, you said uh, Thailand. Yes, I did mean Taiwan. Yeah. Um, the last state they acquired was Tibet, yeah. um, which was the last state anybody has actually truly acquired. Right. Um, and that's it. We can't go spreading empires anymore. Yeah. What we now need to do is somehow unify the whole lot. Yes. Whether through war, whether through revolution, or whether through evolution. Yeah. Um, United Nations or some format like that. Yeah. So my answer to the question is, Harari has defined empires and has now led us to understand that the final step of unification is a step beyond empires. Mm. Okay. Um, would you like to hear my answer? I would. I, I agree with what you're saying. I'll just put it slightly differently. So I don't think we think of the United States as an empire because the, the, the expansion of their empire happened 150, 200 years ago. Yes. So they started off as 13 colonies on the eastern seaboard, yeah. and then their empire, in the true sense of the word, pushed westward. Yes. Okay, to the, to the Pacific Ocean. Yes. Okay. So in that sense, they're an empire. Now, I don't think they're, they're any longer expanding their territory, but you could say the same thing about the Roman Empire. They put the walls up uh, after a certain period of time and decided they weren't going to expand anymore. Good point. I don't think you then wouldn't say, oh, well, Rome is, now, is no longer an empire. Right. I mean, the thing about America is I suppose it's become not culturally homogenous, but they are one people and yes. one country, and we don't think of them as an empire. So I'd say, uh, yeah, yes, they are an empire. They certainly were an empire. What's interesting is you've got military empires, economic empires, and cultural empires. Now, I would see America as being certainly an economic empire and yes. a cultural empire, yes. um, no longer a, a military empire per se. Um, I mean, they do have military activities, of course, but I don't see them as pushing their boundaries out via military they expansion. Don't, they're not pushing their boundaries out via military expansion, but nevertheless, you need to bear in mind they have more aircraft carriers than all other nations in the world combined. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so still a massive military presence. Mm. And they do still... Uh, see, the other way you can look at empire, which is also similar to hegemony, is influence. Influence on neighbouring states. So we talked about the Nuantians, you know. Um, they fought Rome. In fact... All we really know about the Numantians is they fought Rome. Yeah. Rome is the defining article in it. Yeah. And for much of the world, America, call it the great Satan or whatever you do, the United States, has been the story. Mm. Um, yeah, we do some stuff ourselves, and this is how we related to the United States. Yeah. And we did some stuff, and we related to the United States. Mm. Um, so for Canada, for example, is struggling to maintain its own culture because the USA is right on its border and it's so dominant. Yeah. Um, so if we look at empires as being things with a kind of massive cultural impact and we use their currencies, the United States dollar is still the default currency of the world, they've got economic impact... The British Empire was the largest empire ever and it was largely a merchant empire. Um, it was the way it used its economic and trading power to influence everybody else mm. while keeping command of the sea lanes through the, the, the Royal Navy. Mm. Um, and America is doing all of those things. Yeah, yeah. 
in a slightly different way, I mean, when, when you think of the British Empire, you think, you know, they, they were going out to the world and dominating the world. I mean, yeah. America dominates the world, but they're not, they're not, expand, they're not as expansionary. No, they're and not. And that's, that's where the difference is. But I wonder whether it's, it's an empire taking a different form than perhaps what the old empires used to do. This is part of it. The other thing is um, America has had the strange benefit of being a kind of island. We enjoy this in Australia and uh, the United Kingdom enjoys that too, British Isles. That little step across the channel was a step that Hitler couldn't do. Mm. Um, nobody's done it since 1066. And I believe there's such a thing as an island mentality. I think it shapes your yes. view. I mean, I live on a big island and uh, we do... Have, I think we, in Australia, I can speak for Australia, we do have a sense of separateness from the world, I think. And I think the Brits have it as well, even though yes. they're a lot closer to the rest of the world. Correct. And I think, if you want to get right down to it, that's probably one of the main forces that led to Brexit. Brexit yes. Because they just don't quite consider themselves European. Right. Because there happens to be some water that's between the them and the rest of Europe. Yeah. Um, the thing, thing about America is, you know, the reason they've got these 10 aircraft carriers is militarily, that's how they project military force. Because yeah. they can't push across their borders. You know, Germany and China may be kind of in the middle of it all. Yeah. Um, but to America and Britain, it's about sea power and air power. Yeah. And it's a blessed situation to be in. I mean, you know, Germany's and Poland and places like this and even Russia. I mean, they're, they're, they're a lot more paranoid about somebody coming over the border with, than, than Brits and Australians and New Zealanders are. With very good reasons. Yeah. Now, you know, the Brits haven't had to fight somebody on their own soil for a very long time. Yeah. And, um, they, and, they, lost, and they lost that one anyway. And they lost that one, exactly right. <laughs> long memory. And then they say, no one's ever invaded us. <laughs> but, but they're not quite as paranoid as they used to be after you know, nearly a thousand years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the USA has never fought a foreign power within its own borders. Mm. Um, so they've got a very different mentality to Germany, France, Russia, China, etc. Mm. Uh, and this is one of the things about, you know, it happened in 9-11, you know, they actually lost citizens on American soil. It was a, a major shake-up, and it's happening now with COVID-19 in a different way. Um, we are losing Americans on home soil, and we are not able to defend ourselves yeah. against this. Yeah. And, and, and they, don't, uh, they don't have the experience of knowing how to react to that Correct. type of thing that the Europeans and the Asians do. Correct. That's yeah. right. Um, yeah, everybody else knows when you're fighting an invader on your own soil, forget the economy, you... Fix the invader first. Yeah. That's not in the American psyche. They haven't had to do it. Yeah, and things like, oh, hang on, I've got the right not to wear a mask. The, yes. You know, th this is how we're used to thinking. We're used to thinking about our rights. We've had the luxury of yeah. thinking about these things, and sometimes it can bring you undone. Yes. Uh, mm. So we have a coronavirus who's a foreign invader, but you know, this lovely statement he started the chapter with of Rome was used to losing battles. Mm. America is not used to losing battles. No. This is one of the reasons Vietnam was such a shake-up to them. That's a really good point. Mm. Yeah, they aren't used to it, are they? They really aren't. They, they don't handle it well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be interesting to see how the coronavirus plays out in the States and... Um, I, for one, am kind of glad I'm not living there at the current time. Indeed, I join you in that. Mm. Um, I think I think I'll leave that for number one because there's lots more questions. <laughs> We're going to be here for another couple of days, Hutto.
So my second unanswerable question to you is, are empires evil? Oh, and I'm thinking, I keep thinking of Darth Vader when I, when I think yeah, of indeed, evil empires. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's a wonderful question, of course, and um, you referred to the wonderful Monty Python sketch in the Lake of Ryan <laughs> the other day. Um, look, en- empires are very evil from the viewpoint of your own culture. They trample all over your own culture, and as we saw with the Numantians, there are there are cultures that would prefer to die than be trampled all over and be forced into someone else's mode. Cultures are part of our own self-identity. Mm. Uh, this is what we see ourselves as being, and you know, being forced to be someone else is a situation we find ourselves in enough times, but we, we hate it, we fight against it. Mm. So if you're looking at it from the viewpoint of cultural diversity, empires are absolutely an evil thing. Mm. Um, whether or not that's a definition of evil, well, various religions define evil in different ways. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole topic, I think, for another book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say... I don't see... Okay, I put some weight on progress and the arrow of progress. Harari argued earlier on that, you know, the agricultural revolution certainly led to there being more human beings, more chickens, more cattle, more dogs, more rats. Yeah. Um, But is the number of DNA you've spread around the place really the measure of success? Yeah. And he strongly suggested it wasn't. It was a a false trap. Yeah. I'm prepared to agree with that by saying, well, yes, we can look at progress. You know, we are now far more powerful. We can exterminate more species and even ourselves much more effectively. Um, This is all progress, power, opportunity, and empires have been the defining force in that. By subduing others and taking their wealth, they then can channel it into things ranging from Mozart to designer languages like Latin to uh, um, military power and arts, liberalism, philosophy. Yeah, yep. So you're leaning towards empires not being evil, I think. Correct. I actually, look, it isn't the world I'd like to live in. I'd like to live in the world where I sit beside the river and, and fish a bit. And, oh, I'll see you there. Exactly so. And I'd also like to spend my life playing computer games. But I do actually see globalisation as an inevitable and yep. necessary step yep. in human development. I agree with you. As you've been talking, I've been thinking about the analogy between an empire consuming its neighbour, if you like, yes. and me sitting by the river and catching a fish. Yes. Now, is me catching a fish out of the river and eating it, is that evil? And I think the answer to that is, from the perspective of the fish, it is. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and so I think that's not a bad metaphor. I think, you know, it's an inevitable... I mean, I'm, that's what I'm going to do when I'm out there. And it's, it's not great that I'm killing another living creature to survive, but it's a fact of life, isn't it? It is... Um, Maybe not a perfect metaphor. No, no, uh, you you caught me on the hop with that one. We suddenly got all spiritual, yes. Um, We are going to tackle spiritual topics in another book, but I'm I'm just trying to deal with... One of the things about being an autodidact and with the idea of wisdom and many perspectives, of course, is that 
all these things do come in on almost any topic. You yeah. can't just talk about history, history without talking about good and evil and things like and that. And that's what makes it fun. It is, it is. <laughs> this, is uh, this is why I get my fix, yes. <laughs> Are empires evil? I, no, I'm not. And I think the sooner we get rid of Lear and... Luke Skywalker and all these irritating little rebels <laughs> and let the Empire get on with things, the better we'll be. Yeah, so I'll put you down as a Darth Vader man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, no, that's good. I'll, I'll accept that answer. So my next question is... Have, have I got two out of two? I, I didn't say that. I said I, I didn't... You notice your first uh, answer, I didn't say I accept no, that answer. I haven't figured out your score yet. I'll do that randomly. Yeah, so look, two out of eleven is not going to be too bad. <laughs> Oh, you're only on one so far. Are modern Jews the same people as the ancient Jews in the Old Testament? Right. Well, this, of course, is a topic that Harari covered very adequately. And uh, the answer absolutely is no, they're not. Yeah, I think the reason I ask that... So the questions I come up with are the questions that occur to me while I'm reading the book. Because any time you're reading something and thinking about it, what generally happens is you just have all these unanswered questions. Yes. Right, and I've never thought about... Are modern Jews the same as the yes. ancient Jews? So sorry to interrupt you, but no, that, that, no, that's, that's really and, what I'm getting and at. And we did not, in fact, cover okay. in that example, oh, example included. Lucky so, I asked it then. Yeah, yeah exactly so. so. So let's continue. Why are they not the same? Now, he uses the example in the book of King David. If King David, the most iconic, prominent Jewish hero, uh, came back to see modern Judaism, visited Israel, visited Jews in New York, etc. He wouldn't know what the heck was going on. They don't speak the same language, they don't dress the same way, nobody's carrying a sword. Um, they talk about this thing called the Torah, which he's never heard of. Yeah. Um, they're, well, they're worshipping in synagogues. Yeah. What the heck's a synagogue? Yeah, and talking about the temple, which he talking about the temple. About. They're, they're all going to a shul, and getting, you know, what the heck is a shul? Never heard of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he he would not recognise this as the same thing at all. Yeah, yeah. So so that speaks to Judaism having changed over that time. Yes. But I think the question, I think what Harari was getting at was that, in a sense, they're different people as well. They are different and, people. And, and I'm not sure how that would be. Would that be from... Uh, why would they be different people? So, so, so what I think what he's getting at is that the modern Jews aren't necessarily descended from the ancient Jews. They are not. Yeah, so why is that? Okay. It is because a number of other cultures, when under threat, were looking for... Okay, Just as Rome adopted Christianity as its central religion, there were some other peoples who were also looking for a good, sound religion to help bind them together, etc. Okay. And they adopted Judaism. Yeah. I'd have to go and do my fact checks on who they were. Yeah. Um, but yeah... They're not genetically the same descendants. So the ancient either. Jews were a bit of an empire themselves for a while. Well, they'd like to make out that under David, which was the maximum extent of their geography, they were making out that they were empire. And, of course, that's the bit they like to talk about so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But mainly they were just a muddled bunch of tribes, much very similar to Bedouins, for yeah. example. And as soon as you take on the religion and the identity, you, you're Jewish in a sense, aren't you? Could, look, and then your descendants... Are Jewish usually, and you, but you're not necessarily descended from Adam and Eve or no, you know whoever Abraham's probably absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, Judaism came into existence when that remnant returned from Babylon, 
and created Judaism and yeah. called themselves Judaism. Up until then, they all saw themselves as a tribe of Israel, mm. and the story was all about Israel. Yeah. So they invented Judaism on the return from Babylon when they started rebuilding Jerusalem. Yeah, okay, okay. And was Judaism, I'm asking you a question without notice, was Judaism, I know today it's not really a proselytising religion. No, it's not. But was it at one stage a proselytising religion? Maybe it no. was. No, no it, wasn't. it never, never was. was. Okay. It's always been exclusive. Okay. Uh, that was a great revelation of... Well, there are a couple of criteria of becoming a Jew that a lot of people probably don't want to uh, participate in. Correct. And yeah. you know, nowadays we do the, the descendant from the mother side, which is interesting too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the great thing when, where Paul turned everything upside down was when he suddenly said Christianity is a proselytising religion. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was a shock to... Changed world history, had I? Well, yeah, it was a shock to Peter. And he then had to go and have this dream from God about, you know, everyone can partake of the banquet, etc., um, yeah. to, to fall in with Paul on that idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got another question uh, about the Jewish people. If, if Cyrus hadn't allowed the Jews to return to their original homeland and rebuild their temple, would the Jewish people still maintain such a strong connection to their identity and to that land to this day? Well, absolutely. This is hitting a wonderful nail on the head there, Matt. Absolutely not. <laughs> Judaism would not even exist. Yeah. Because it was only when they went back from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild it that they started to write this whole cultural idea of what Judaism is. Mm. And they looked at what they got in the way of remnants of stories and stuff like that, and they put together the Torah, which never existed before, mm. before that. And then they built Judaism as a culture around the Torah. Mm. Um, and in many ways, it's brilliant. It's worth studying from that. Now, stepping on from that, of course, Jesus... Joshua of Nazareth was a Jew, was born into this Jewish culture, and he modified and adopted it, and from that we get Christianity, thanks mm. to a bit of input from Paul and a few others. Yep. And subsequently to that, when Muhammad was looking at how to create a new religion, um, he looked quite heavily at how Christianity came together, borrowed parts of that, made mm. uh, Jesus, Joshua an icon of Islam. And so the three, three of the big religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, who are currently still number more than half of the world's population, mm. would not exist mm. if Cyrus had not allowed that remnant to return to Jerusalem. So they wouldn't just not be attached to the land, they wouldn't be attached, they wouldn't be such a thing as Jews in the yeah. world. So that then leads to my next question, it's a good answer, I'll give you a tick for that. Is Cyrus the Great more important in history than we realise? Well, you've just proven the point, this was the nail you hit. Yeah. Um, yes, sometimes individuals and what they do turn everything upside down. Yeah, um, yeah. and he wouldn't have... I mean, he wasn't... It's funny how he had such a massive effect on history without that ever being his intention. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Because normally, you know, someone like Hitler, he was he was definitely trying to change history and Napoleon and a yes. lot of these guys. Yeah. But Cyrus was, you know, probably trying to do bits and pieces. But I don't yeah. think he, 
he had in mind, oh, I'm going to, uh, you know, build the world's great religions. Absolutely not. And I mean, he, he had no concept how big the world was or yeah. he didn't have enough history to fall back on to even think of the possibility. Hitler and Napoleon did. Yeah. Um, history was still something of a new concept. He was <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> history was... I mean, history was invented, if you like, around that time. Yeah, as exactly guys like right. Herodotus and that started writing, you know, yeah, history books. That's right. Herodotus, the father of history, also known as the father of lies, because if you didn't know the answer, he'd just, yeah, write a good story. That's, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the sort of history I'd like to write, I don't know. <laughs> um, now, are some nations, I'm using the word nation just because that's what we tend to use today, but you could use empires or, you know, right. entity, yeah. political entities. Are they, are some good and others bad? Now, ah. a bit of background to that is I grew up in a Western democracy during the Cold War and all the movies, the Russians were the, uh, were the bad guys and the yeah. Americans or what have you were the good guys. And yep. then if you go to early movies, movies and that, well, the Germans were the bad guys yep. and the English were the good guys. So I think a lot of us grow up with this sort of idea that, you know, there's good guys and bad guys Absolutely. out there. I so so that's, that's a bit of context for the question. I'll let you give me your answer. I seem to remember some Hollywood movies about the cavalry saving the good guys from the devilish native Indians too. <laughs> um, yes, look, uh, we're, we're very keen on the good guys, bad guys. I, I, born in the British Empire, of course, had a certain orientation to things British and particularly things English being all things good. Um, I think it was Flanders and Swan who put it together in their lovely closing song. The English, the English, the English are best. I wouldn't give tuppence for all of those aspects. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine you singing that as a schoolboy. Oh, I don't know why. <laughs> and you would have been loving it. <laughs> I don't know why that didn't catch on as a national anthem. But <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> We do have concepts of good and bad. We, talk, we talked earlier of, um, you know, so what, what have the Roman Empire ever done for us and the Monty <laughs> Python sketch and all the rest of it. Um, look, we generally consider the good guys as doing things which are kind of good and nice to people, whether even, you know, Hitler saw himself as a good guy. Putting, you know, building the uh, German nation, putting the Aryans in charge, doing uh, wonderful things with culture and you know Wagner and all the rest of it. Um, this is one of the terrifying things of how easily people can see things as being good when they're doing terrible things. I think a good illustration of that is when you have an anti-hero in a movie yes. and he's the protagonist... Yes. And he's the worst guy in the world, but you're still, you're still rooting for him yeah. because he's the protagonist. Yeah. And yeah. I, think, I think we all think of ourselves as the protagonist in our own movie. They did a, um, a poll in Russia in about 2001 or three or something like that as to who were the great, Russian, great Russians. And Stalin was still polling, about one-third of Russians were still polling Stalin as the greatest Russian of all time. I would describe him as great. I wouldn't describe him as good. Well, that, <laughs> Because there's a difference. That's a very good point. Yeah. But they were, they were saying, you know, Stalin was, was a good thing for Russia. Yeah. Um, and I saw a core question the other day of, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, 
is trying to do nothing except what's good for America. Why do so many people hate him? And I thought, yeah, well, Hitler was trying to do nothing except what's good for Germany. But, yeah. you know, it depends who you see as being Germans. Hitler did not consider the Jews to be Germans. And let's face it, it's all a collective delusion anyway. Well, that too. <laughs> um, no, I'm sure that uh, Stalin wasn't trying to do anything he didn't consider to be good for Russia. Um, but to the people in the, uh, the labour camps, it didn't feel quite that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the things with demagogues and Hitler is, you know, they were doing good things for Germans. Let's get rid of all these Jews and then I can give you all the, their stuff can go to the good Germans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you happen to be one of his chosen good Germans, you could see him as a thoroughly good guy. Well, I had my opinion about this fundamentally changed about five years ago when I discovered an obscure blog post on the internet, and I wish I could rediscover it because I'd like to send it to you. It's about a five-hour read, oh. right? It's almost, like a, it's almost like a novel, but I read every word. It was fascinating. And he, he used America as an example of... And, and he wasn't trying to pick on America. He was an American guy. Yeah. But he went through all the things that America's done in the world, good and bad. Right. And um, his main thesis was that nation states are neither moral or immoral. Right. They are all amoral. Yes. And they all act in their own best interests. Yes. And it was really quite profound, actually. I, you know, because I'd grown up thinking of good guys and bad guys. And when I read that, I was like, you know, he's right. And, and, and Australia, as an Australian, we tend to think of ourselves as the good guys, but we're no, we're no different. No. You know, like we, we helped the East, we helped yeah. the East Timorese liberate themselves from the Indonesians. Um, and that's the way it was certainly sold in the papers back here. You know, we yeah. liberated the people. But then, yeah, we didn't have any problem um, exploiting them, exploiting their oil and taking all their oil after we did that. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because yeah. there's some oil uh, offshore between Australia yeah. and, and Timor. And Australia was, no question, acting in Australia's interests. Yes. And whether it's moral or immoral is not only is, well, it's irrelevant and just not even part of the decision. Correct. Um, apart from the fact that you, you've got to worry there's a little bit of a um, game theory in there because you need to keep the rest of the world's global opinion. You've got to, you, know, you don't want to alienate them necessarily. As you were saying with price. Saddam Hussein. Yes. Yeah, so that, that's what I believe. I, I, I think all nation states are amoral. I think you're completely right on that. Uh, nation states act in the interest of nations and we expect their leaders to act in the interest yeah. of the nation. And when I read in the paper, you know, how bad China's being and how no. bad Russia's being, I take it with a pinch of salt. Now, I'm sure they are doing bad things, but I'm sure they're doing... I mean, they're not evil people that are trying to take over the world and all that sort of stuff. Uh, no more than the Americans are or that the British were the, or what have you. This is the problem. I mean, <clears throat> I, we've had a debate about uh, Australia Day here because for... Some strange reason the Aborigines don't really see Australia Day as being a great thing. It's the day Australia Day celebrates the day that white European British settlers first discovered Australia. This yes. is not well, no, first settled. Yeah, first settled Australia. Yeah. This is not exactly a cause of uh, rejoicing for Aboriginal and, Australians. And is often known colloquially as Invasion Day. Yes. Which some, a lot of white Australians get offended by that term, but it's indisputable. It's indisputable, exactly so. Yeah. Now, similarly, you know, the, uh, the arrival of settlers in America was 
did terrible things for the Native American Indians. Yeah. Um, and the arrival of the conquistadors in South America was terrible for them too. Yeah. Um, so, yes, nations are only concerned about what's good for a nation. They are amoral mm. and their leaders are amoral. And I, I've worn that hat myself. Mm. I remember being treasurer of uh, a school. And as treasurer, I thought the staff were... So, so, as a member of the school, I thought the staff were terribly underpaid, yeah. uh, which they unquestionably were. Um, but as treasurer, I was trying to hold the line against any wage increases. Yeah, that's because, you know, <laughs> the school's finances were very precarious. You were forced to be evil. Exactly. Yeah. And I was joining with the rest of the board in making a decision that probably none of us would have made. Individually. Individually. That's yeah, right. that, that's interesting yeah. too. And, and this, this is what's meant about companies making decisions. Yeah, companies make decisions that none of the directors agree with and nations make decisions that none of the parliamentarians, uh, senators or whatever would make in their own individual right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so p for people that don't know, Australia was settled by um, some soldiers and a bunch of convicts on January the 26th. 1788. Um, Matt's always much better on history than I am. And, and, our, and our Australia Day is on January the 26th, and, and you know a lot of people have a problem with that. And I, I saw uh, something on the internet, someone saying, we should change the date to May 8. Do you understand why we change it? It's mate, May oh, Day. Right. And so, I'm a fan. I'd love to have mate day. That, that that would actually, strangely enough, in this weird culture we have, would be very Australian. Yes. Yeah, and, and also it's something we can all celebrate. We don't have a spiritual connection to the date January 26th. No, no one gives a shit, no. really, what date it is. So a lot of people are claiming to now, now that it's a bit controversial. So this controversy has sort of blown up in the last 10 years, really. You know, it wasn't really a thing no. that anyone discussed 50 years ago. But every year it comes around and it's kind of a... It's a bit like Columbus Day in the States. Yes. You know, it's like, oh, you know, should we really be celebrating this? But I reckon May 8 is the way to go. So if they ever have a referendum on that, that's the way I'll be voting. Right. right. <laughs> uh, my next question is, and I think this is a tough, I don't know the answer to this, Hunter, so I'll be interested to, to see what you think. Why do you think former colonies of the British Empire, such as Australia, New Zealand and Canada, were able to able to achieve their independence relatively easily and peacefully, whereas others, such as the US and India, had to fight for it in one way or another? Well, I think it gave me pause for thought. Yes. But then I thought... But you've solved it. <laughs> then I thought, and the answer is actually very obvious when you think about it. Right. Who were the majority of the people in New Zealand, Canada and Australia? Whitey. They'd come from... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in India, they weren't. So they were. That was my original thought. Yeah. But it doesn't explain the US, does it? Um, the US were... The US were not originally fighting for their independence. The US wanted to bring George V's attention to the problem yeah. that we're getting a raw deal here. Yeah. And they thought all they were trying to do initially was say, hey, look, you know, you're collecting these taxes off us. We don't think they're terribly reasonable and we think we will at least have some sort of voice in how they're spent and stuff like that. They were quite horrified when he took the hard line that the 
you know, you're just my, you're just colonists out there, you're, uh, you're my subjects, you should darn well do what I told you to do and fall in line. And in fact, the, uh, the Whigs did not see it that way and they frustrated uh, the king in his intentions to just subjugate these upsea colonists mm. and uh, bring them to line. And uh, one of the reasons America won its war of independence was because important part of the British Parliament was not on side with this agenda. Mm. But they did not originally seek independence. Yes. They sought representation. And then George V went and sort of forced them out. So that then, but, but then why didn't that happen in Australia, something similar to that? Why, uh, why are they different cases? Because the, uh, the current ruling monarch saw things a bit differently and was a bit more reasonable. So this is another example of one individual having a huge effect on history. It is. So are you suggesting that if... So Australia became independent, became, like federated. Yeah. So we were six independent colonies. Yeah. Uh, and we federated into one nation, if you like, on January the 1st, 1901. Yeah. Are you suggesting that if George the, you know, King George was the king in 1901, that we... Wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened? Uh, well, obviously there are other political circumstances. Around. Well, I want to know exactly what they are. Putting <laughs> <No. laughs> the pressure on. What I'm saying is that uh, if the USA had been trying to do it in 1901, yeah. they too would probably have ended up with a Governor-General. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of, is, is, is the difference in the time. Yes. So the US were the first, if you like, that yeah. got sort of affluent. Yeah. And, I mean, they were doing all this before we were even settled here. Yes. And, you know, how much change in those 120 years? It seems like a lot. Yes, a lot. Yeah. Um, but I don't understand, you know, I can say, yeah, a lot changed in those 120 years, but I can't really give you a definitive answer as to what actually was different. Because well, um, I agree with you. I thought it was a racial thing uh, originally. So uh, yeah, the white people, we won't fight with them, but we will sort of repress the, the darker right. people that are in our empire. But the US is an anomaly. And the only thing that I can see different about it is not so much the King George thing, but the fact that it was a different time. But I don't understand what was so different about those, well, those yeah, times. Well, yeah, to think of the French Revolution yeah, and think of how that shook up the whole idea. Of well, the, the French Revolution was, was in large part inspired by the American Revolution. The Americans kind of showed that you could uh, throw off the yoke of oppression. Correct. And the French were inspired by um, that. And, but the, there was also, you know, it was a thing of the times that the ruled and the rulers, the relationship between them was changing. Yeah. Um, now, the British already... Yeah, so the Americans were back in the, in the day of the Anshan regime, if you like, or the yeah. Great Chain of Being, where... The king was appointed by God, and you just didn't mess with that stuff. Right. And you're right, it's post-enlightenment. And, and Australia and Canada and New yeah. Zealand became independent post-enlightenment. And, and how did the US succeed? They succeeded because the British, who had a strong parliament, the important part of that parliament opposed the king's rule yeah. and did not allow the king to muster and send the forces to America yeah. they would like to have sent. Yeah. In France, you had the situation that the king had suspended Parliament, yep, and that was the whole problem. And in the end, mm. that resulted in the French Revolution. I think we've come to an answer, uh, Hutto. I think we'll put it down to racism in most cases, <laughs> and also the unenlightened times in the in the one case of, right. of the US. Yep. And I think you're right. I don't think they really thought 
oh, we're going to rebel against the king. Because the king was appointed by God. Everyone took that seriously. Yeah. Um, and they did it almost by accident and then changed the way everybody thought. That's right. Yeah, yes. And then the French do it and then, bang, nation states and liberalism and, yeah. and independence is the way to go. Right. But parliament was not... Parliament was a representative of the haves at that stage yeah. in a very real sense. And the haves, you know, those English barons were the first mob to come up with limits on the king's power. And So all the Americans had to do was hang tight for another hundred years and they would have been fine, although the French Revolution probably wouldn't have happened if the American Revolution didn't. Well, But if they had hung tight, they wouldn't have had to have had a war and they'd be driving on the left side of the road and, you know, they'd be coming to the Commonwealth Games and winning all the gold medals. All sorts of things. Now, you also have to bear in mind, of course, that England had already had its civil war, which limited the power of the king versus... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the French were due for it. They were just slower off the mark. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and that's not the topic of today's chapter, <laughs> of course, and we might be elaborating too much, but I'm looking for... Oh, I love history, so let's get in and start chewing that over at some other time. Uh, my next question for you, Hutto, is was the British Empire a good thing? Oh, best thing since... Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. The British Empire. Um, well... I mean, yes, the British Empire did a lot of good things in unification and shaping the world and all the rest of it and also subjugated an awful lot of people and there is no good reason for Australian Aborigines to be particularly thrilled about the British Empire. They could still be sitting by the river eating fish. Um, I think the British Empire was the best of a bad lot. Uh, one thing I do give the British Empire credit for is ending slavery. Yes, that's one of the strange consequences. Um, again, a lot of things came into play there. Uh, but for a merchant empire that was actually making quite a lot of money out of slavery, to suddenly go all moral in this way was is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. That was um, really started by, uh, I think it was... Presbyterians, it was like, uh, or they might have been Quakers, but there was religious religious people. Yeah, well, there was a lot of religion went on in England, and that we can trace back to Henry VIII and uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Mm. And that too is another of the examples of a single individual having a massive impact on how the world shaped up, because America would not now largely be a Protestant country. Mm. if those events had not occurred. Well, America was settled by um, religious pilgrims. Yeah. Um, we, got, we got the crooks and they got the religious <laughs> nuts. <laughs> and our societies have gone down different paths. Absolutely. Totally representative of the cultures we therefore have. Mm. Uh, okay, next question. Is nationalism... Harari makes the statement that nationalism was starting to lose ground. And we talked, we've talked about yes. that during the podcast. And I thought, I don't know if that's true, but then he gives a lot of good examples as to how it is. Yeah. But what, and I'm answering the question, I apologise, but I don't, I don't believe national pride is losing ground. I think we still identify with our nation state. You know, I'm, I'm a proud Australian and I'm sure Brits are proud Brits and Turks are proud Turks and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, so I saw that as like almost a, an emotional argument, nationalism starting to lose its power over our hearts and minds. I don't think that's the case, but I'll let you answer. Is nationalism starting to lose ground? Um, I think what we are seeing is the last counterpunch of nationalism. 
Um, so, you know, Brexit is a clear example of nationalism. A bunch of people were sufficiently unhappy at Britain being absorbed into the European Union that they kicked back against it. Um, and we're seeing it in Catalonia and, and places like that. I don't. Uh, COVID-19 has caused a lot of nations to look at defending their borders against immigrants possibly carrying coronavirus. Mm. Um, and some people are therefore saying this only shows the extent to which nationalism is still necessary. We must be able to defend our borders and keep other people out. And We've seen this relating to immigration policies. We've seen it relating to global trade and a whole bunch of things like that. Um, there are good arguments for nationalism. Coronavirus is also showing exactly why we need to look at things from a global perspective yeah. and deal with it on a, a global basis. Yeah. Um, what happens in one country very much affects me here all around the world. There is no nation which is not affected by coronavirus. The problem with these unanswerable questions, Harrow, is there's no simple answers. You're so right. The more you know about the realities of life, the more you find it's complex. I like simple answers. Simple answers are good. We all prefer simple answers. Mm. Um, we have an innate predisposition to ten-word answers that make sense. So I think nationalism, nationalism is starting to lose ground in practical terms as world NGOs and multinational corporations and so yeah. forth have more, have more effect. But I think our hearts and minds are still in our countries. Very much so. We tend to emote locally while being influenced globally. Mm. Um, some of the points Hawari makes, which is completely right, of course, is we now have international finance um, almost completely operable. We have an international web, which, while China's built the great internet wall of China, etc., um, still, to a very large extent, the internet is enabling global communications and mm. things like that. We've got... Uh, a good example is in the 80s, George Soros single-handedly caused the British pound to crash. Yes. Um, so, undoubtedly, we have multinational corporations with enormous power. Organised crime is very much thinking internationally these days. They move drugs around everywhere. They organise... How do I get in that business, uh, Hutton? That sounds pretty lucrative. Oh, it's extremely lucrative, yeah. Um, well, <laughs> Maybe high risk, high reward, perhaps. We will discuss that between the flip and the flop. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we, we have one language for international air travel, navigation and stuff like that, which is using English as the lingua franca. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of push towards globalisation and there's consequently a lot of emotional push back against globalisation. So on that topic then, is a single global government a good idea? One world government, Hutto, are we, are we right-wing conspiracy nutjobs advocating for a global government? Right. One global government is eventually inevitable, but the problem, one of the reasons why empires fall apart and one of the reasons why globalisation faces an uphill struggle is it tramples on local cultures. Nobody is comfortable in these things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Brexit is about the fact that we like being... Empires don't fall apart for that reason, by the way. If that's just the cost that's paid by the, the people that are getting exploited. Okay, to make 
And we know why empires fall apart. It's because of squabbling between the elite or external invasion. To make a... Okay, unless you're going to simply use military oppression, mm. to make people join together and cooperate, you need compromise. And the bigger your empire, the more compromises are occurring all the time. Yeah. What yeah. works well in a little tropical island is not what works well up in... And what Italy. works 2,000 years ago where you just ruthlessly you know, slaughtered everybody if they were giving you a hard time doesn't, doesn't uh, go down quite as well this, in these it, days. It certainly does not. Mm. Um, so the problem you have is that the bigger your empire the more compromises more people are making. Yeah. Well, we've now got 7.5 billion people on this planet and we're talking about trying to make a global empire. Should we have daylight saving? Because some people in Norway probably don't want daylight saving. Uh, absolutely <laughs> right. You know, from dress cultures to marriage laws to diet to everything else, nothing works well around the whole globe. So everybody's making a compromise. Uh, just do it, and then yeah, we'll all adjust in about 500 years. Well, yeah. Now, let's if we go for democracy, we're automatically putting a bunch of Chinese and Indian in charge of everything, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, and that's one of the problems with democracy. It's, it's the tyranny of the majority. Tyranny of the majority, yeah. very well put. Yeah. Now, the majority of people on this planet are have-nots. And the haves are not going to be overly enthusiastic. That's why we need to go left-wing, Hutto. We need to look after the have-nots and, and tax the rich. And eat these. the rich. So the problem is... <laughs> which, I, which I will continue to say, unless I happen to get rich one day, and then all of a sudden my opinion will completely change. <laughs> it's, uh, it's always good to meet an honest man. Uh, hypocrisy has no place in autodidactism. Yes. <laughs> The problem with globalisation is we are asking everybody to live in a political entity that nobody is comfortable living <laughs> in. <laughs> but, but by the same token, we sort of think it might be inevitable with time this, um, because there are sort of large forces sort of yeah, heading in that direction. This is what Harari is saying. Tension. And Tension. I, I find his arguments completely convincing. In fact, I had arrived at that opinion before I ever read this book. Oh, I had as well, um, but I also see that, mate, this is going to be a nightmare, you know, trying to put this together. This is correct. But, yeah, I do believe it's inevitable if we last long enough. You know, it might take another thousand years, but, you know, are we going to last another thousand years? You know, that, that's a good question. Well, the, the arrow of history is also saying that everything happens faster and faster. You yeah, know, he, that's he, true. he made the point, you know, 200,000 years ago, human beings, sapiens arrived, then 70,000 years, agricultural revolution. Sorry. Um, we, cognitive. Cognitive revolution. 10,000 years, agricultural revolution. 500, 500 years, science. technological revolution. How long do you really think it's going to be before we have full globalisation? But the other thing is we don't often get anything right first time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good answer. Um, my last question, actually, Hutto, because we've spent a lot of time on unanswerable questions today. In Australia, we're a constitutional monarchy. Right. And our, our head of state is essentially the Queen of England, and she has a representative in Australia called the Governor-General who acts, yep. sort of acts independently, but he's really acting on her behalf. Right. And he doesn't do much. He's like, the, you know, he's a constitutional figure. He yep. doesn't have any political power, but, you know, he, he has a bit of sway in terms of, you know, when he says something, people listen. Um, 
Should we have our own head of state, Hello. Should we have an Australian head of state? Is it an anachronism in this day and age for us to have a foreign head of state? It is an anachronism. Um, it certainly goes against nationalism. Um, but then we've just had a discussion that suggests that nationalism may be on the way out. Yeah. Uh, and so being part of a larger constitutional commonwealth of some sort may actually be avant-garde. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice, nice man. Um, now, we have a big debate here about the form of our constitution. We are really under a constitutional monarch. Um, and that has its, its pros in terms of... In a republic, you often have a president as, for example, commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Yeah. Um, in Australia, the prime minister does not get to be commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Mm. Um, this actually has a lot going for it yes. in many ways. Yeah. Uh, as a republic, we'd probably have a president who was commander-in-chief of the armed forces, yeah. as they do in America, as they do in France. Um, I'm happy to see any change in our constitution which results in something genuinely better. Yeah. I've yet to see an argument put forward that this would be better. I completely understand that the idea that we've got effectively a foreign person as our head of state is very questionable, very strange. Um, but I haven't seen anybody put together a revised format that's better than what we have. My for my uh, so I, I I used to be a fairly passionate Republican. I remember that. The case. only thing I wanted to change about our constitution was to, to sever the final tie and, and, and make our Governor General, you can call them, still call them a Governor no, I call them a Governor General, you might call them a President. Yeah. Don't change any of their roles or powers, right. but make them the head of state. So that person's picture is on the coins rather right. than the Queen. Yeah. Now, that's not a better system, right? Yeah. Except for, spiritually speaking and emotionally speaking, I now have an Australian... As an Australian, I can aspire to be the head of state of my own country if, if that's what I want to do. And I think there's some value in that. Yes. Now, so we had a referendum in 1999 and I was very passionate and it didn't get up because I see you know, a lot of people are conservative and they just, oh, look, we've got a good system, we'll stick with it. And I, I, I was quite angry about that at the time. But now, given that I'm thinking the world needs more ties, not less, I'm starting to think, oh, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. So I'm starting to soften in my passionate Republican edge. It was actually in about that time that I first met Matt, and you were indeed an angry young man. Sturm und Drang. Yes, look, we've got different groups of listeners out there. Um, the Americans do not follow the Westminster system, and so for them, a president who is commander-in-chief of the armed forces... Okay. The issue is head of state as apart from head of government. Yeah. In America... I don't want to change any of that. Right. In America, the president is both head of state and head of government. That's right. I, I believe our system's better. Okay. Yeah. But many Americans may not understand what it is we're even talking about. Yeah, and we, we won't have time to go into it now. Indeed. We'll, we'll talk about no. that. But know. under the Westminster system, you have a prime minister who may be head of government and... A constitutional monarch who is head of state. Which I'm a fan of. I, I, I don't mind the, the monarchy. Yeah. I, I'm happy with the monarchy. Right. Uh, I just think a foreign monarchy is a bit absurd. Well, one can totally understand that. And, you know, I'm sure there'd be a lot of people would like the idea of we should have our own king or queen and then we could have our own princesses and the, the press would love that. They'd sell lots of stories yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that that's really the way I want to see the world go either. Yeah. But, 
Yeah. That gets us to the end of our questions, Hutto. We spent nearly an hour on questions today, and I think you've done well. Now, I've scientifically worked out your score, and out of 11, I'm going to give you... I think you did well today. I'm going to give you 7.5. 7.5. Wow. That's pretty good for unanswerable questions. It is. Um, now, having more questions does mean I at least get my score up, so where your percentage is. <laughs> I reckon I marked you a bit too easy a bit early on. You know, the first few times you were getting 100%, but I've realised, look, these are unanswerable questions. By rights, you should be getting zero, so to get seven and a half is good. <laughs> right. right, that's good. Well, I hope we haven't bored our listeners to tears, because... As far as we're concerned, this is the heart and soul. We're going to continue talking about this for another two hours off, off air, aren't we? <laughs> this is what autodidactism is about. We love, we love having chats, but it's very boring for the other people in the room. <laughs> That's right. We actually learned from this, and you know, after 20 years, Matt is actually no longer a hardcore Republican, so there is progress. <laughs> <laughs> You've enlightened me so much, Hanno. So um, I'm going to call it a day on that. And uh, thanks for your time once again. Elbow bump, me old mate. Elbow bump. And uh, where are you going to see me? On the flip-flop. <laughs> <laughs>